You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Yeah, sweet. Okay. Uh, My name is Lindsay Pratt, and um, I have been a part of Free City since last August, so about 10 months now. Um, I'm in the Teets Higginbotham City Group. Yes, it's pretty great. Um, And I serve in kids and uh, tear down here. Um, I'm going to be reading from Ecclesiastes 9.11 through 10.20, and that can be found on page 522 in the hardback Bibles under some of the seats. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. In the anger of the ruler, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. The iron is blunt. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. 
Lord, um, yeah, as we come to hear from you and your word today, I just pray that you would be at work in all of us, that your spirit would be um, moving in a way that we can hear what you want us to hear, that we would um, grow in wisdom, that we grow in fear of you, and that we would honor you as Lord above all, and that um, you would enable us to um, just walk humbly with you and display you to the world around us. And I pray also for um, for this school and the administration and everyone who's been so gracious to uh, give us a space to meet. And um, Lord, I just pray that you, even as the school year wraps up, that you would continue to be at work in the lives of all of these um, teachers, administrators, and everyone. And that, um, yeah, God, that through um, just the work of your spirit and um, through us as your church, that you would help us to come alongside, um, yeah, these people in Lawrence who, um, yeah, are, are hungry to know you whether or not they know it. And I pray that, uh, yeah, that you'd be glorified and that you would um, just enter into the lives of people here in this school and in this city. Um, yeah, Lord, we love you and um, just thank you for all that you are and all you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're glad you're with us. Uh, if you are here for the first time, or you've been here hundreds and hundreds of times, uh, and if you've been with us, uh, we've been uh, walking through or striving through, sometimes crawling through uh, Ecclesiastes, and we're here. I know I saw people get nervous anytime we cover two chapters, um, and uh, that's what we're doing, and it's going to be awesome. Um, but, uh, man, as we're looking through Ecclesiastes, you know, this is, you know, I, I even had trouble kind of even naming this sermon because it's really just uh, Wisdom and Folly Part 4, you know. I mean, we just keep going. And uh, it comes with these ideas of when predictions fail us. Like when we think what should work, it doesn't work, and it really upsets us. Like when we think this is certain, and then it, it's not. You know, actually, I, I want to share this quote, and so this is from one of my commentaries. It's talking about these two chapters, and it says, of all the passages in Ecclesiastes, this one is probably the most difficult to interpret and preach, but that should not stop the preacher who believes all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness. Thank you, Sydney, for that. Thank you. And so I just wanted to share that. So if it goes bad, I mean, Sydney agrees it's hard. And if it goes good, I worked really, really hard. You need to know that. Um, but I wanted to share, even before we got there, man, just something about um, God's kindness. Uh, I've Actually, for the last like month, I've been trying to really just focus on just the kindness of God um, and just trying to look for different areas of kindness. And we talked as we uh, were doing the life transformation field guide. You know, another way to say that is practicing gratitude or, or thankfulness. And uh, man, it just kind of occurred to me earlier this week that, uh, man, one of the ways that God's kindness has been shown to me is just the things that I'm reading, where I'm reading scripture or where I'm reading in just other books to, to shape me, um, have really lined up with really specific things for other people um, and for me. And so it's kind, of, uh, it's kind of been fun, just like something comes across, and I'm like, man, I just read this. Um, but man, God's kindness to use things to make me feel equipped 
And so like, I, I don't know where, where this finds you and where we talk about like wisdom really failing this morning and where wisdom doesn't always come through and where it plagues our lives and it plagues and folly might plague our words. But I want you to hear this. I want you to see this. God is being kind to you. It may not feel like kindness in the moment, but that's what the New Testament really wants to bring to light, that the God of the universe is able to take all circumstances and to pull them together to bring kindness to you that might bring glory to God and good to you. And the problem is when we don't see it, and I'm not saying circumstances aren't difficult, and I'm not saying that God doesn't even get mad about the circumstances in your life, about the brokenness of sin. That was actually something that I got to share with uh, someone very, very close to me uh, because uh, just what I was reading and what I was preparing for John 11 where I was like, God gets angry at sin and death. But man, what a kindness to me just to equip that moment to look at someone and just be like, hey, I just want you to know, man, I've been reading about this. God hates that. God is being kind to you. That wasn't even a part of this, so let's hop in. <clears throat> but like Sydney said, this is a difficult text. So it says this in so many different ways, and it's going to make this connection, or I'm going to make this connection, where it talks about folly and, and then sin. And so if we're looking at this in Ecclesiastes 9, it talks about wisdom and folly over and over. And it starts in verse 11, and it builds to the very, very end of the chapter in verse 18. But then verse 18, it makes this connection. And so if you read verse 18, it says this, it connects the idea of wisdom being, or I'm sorry, of wisdom. Look, verse 18, just read it. This is easier. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And so it, it's going to make this kind of connection when it's talking about folly. It's going to say sometimes folly is just folly. Like sometimes we just do dumb things and it's just dumb. But it's going to tell us this. All sin is ultimately folly. It's addictive in nature. It wants to take all. It doesn't want to leave anything behind. It's not your pet on a string. It's an animal that wants to destroy you, that wants to devour you. It's not something that you can put in one corner of your house or in one corner of a room and say, stay there. It's something that wants to take all. It wants to consume, and in the end, it exposes itself as it works against the created order that God establishes. It exposes itself to be incredibly foolish. So all sin is ultimately folly working against the created order, but sometimes folly is just kind of dumb. You know, like, uh, you know, I was going to make fun of the weather prediction in this area because it seems like it's never right, but they nailed it this morning. Like, I mean, I feel like they told me at 7.33 the wind was going to blow my basketball goal over, and it happened. I mean, they just, they absolutely nailed the prediction. But, like, I mean, I grew up in Oklahoma, and I grew up, uh, you know, we have tornadoes too, uh, and I grew up with Jim Gardner, Jim Gardner is a pilot, a helicopter pilot, and he, he, they pay him to follow tornadoes, which seems like a bad idea. 
But he would follow and he'd give us like moment by moment and you'd get these warnings, like you would hear him talking and the blades beating and he would say, if you live in this area, take shelter right now. And no one actually takes shelter. They all go outside to wave at Jim and they're all like, man, it's crazy. He's flying a helicopter, but he's right. There's a tornado right here. All sin is ultimately foolishness, but not all foolishness is necessarily sin. But why is it that we get so accustomed to predictions being right that when they're wrong, even if they're wrong in the minority of the times, why do we get so upset? Like we might laugh when it's about weather, but when it's about our lives, like how do we feel about it? Like what about when we are the best or we've worked the hardest or we've cared the most and we get passed over? Or what about when we took precautions and we met the fall anyway? Or what about when the right thing, we did it, we worked hard to do it and it didn't matter one bit? Does wisdom work? Like, does it work? Does the right thing matter? And Solomon in Ecclesiastes 9 and 10, he says, yes, wisdom works. Yes, goodness matters. But then he says, yes, but. Yes, it works, but it doesn't always happen the way it should. When wisdom and goodness are absent, it gets really bad and people suffer. But even when wisdom and goodness are present, they're still subject to the unpredictability of life. They're still subject to the brokenness of this world that things still just fall apart. They're still subject to what Solomon calls chance and death that overtakes all. They're still subject to something that we can't count on or something that we can't see, but the scriptures speak about them so plainly. And so I've got four points, and I know it's a lot of verses. It's actually gonna go a little bit quicker than maybe what you think. But I just, if you, if you are looking at this, we're gonna look at this. First, we're gonna look at the unpredictable uh, reality that the fastest and the strongest don't always win. And then we're gonna look at what sin and foolishness does. And sin and foolishness, it wants to take all. It doesn't want to stand on a boundary and not cross it. It wants to take all. Then sin and foolishness, it shows how it infects all. It lives and exists in all things and it and it wants to turn life upside down. And then finally, we're gonna look at how sin and foolishness live in our words. And so let's, let's get started. The first thing, our unpredictable reality. This is gonna tell us the fastest, strongest, and smartest don't always win. There's a way that the foolishness or the brokenness of life, it has a way of breaking through. And so look at verse 11. Verse 11 says this, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. And and, and so what he says is the fastest doesn't always win the race, the strongest doesn't always win the fight, and the smartest isn't always rewarded. Like chance happens to them all. Like the fastest usually wins the race. 
Like, and if you're slow and you've been in races growing up, you know that it's not often that the fast person trips and you win, but it is often that you fake the hammy injury and thought, man, I almost had him. I mean, it's like the fastest doesn't always win. A, a couple weeks ago, uh, Anna's soccer team, um, my, my, the girls, man, they're so competitive. It is so fun. Uh, this week, the first day that was hot, one of the girls just puked everywhere. It was awful. Um, but it's because it wasn't not sick, not sick, sonic on the car ride over, and then heat. Don't do that to your kids. And so, um, but we, uh, I was making them, we divide up in two teams, and we keep score. And it's not because of me. It's because of them. They want to keep score, and they want punishments for the loser. Like, they're like, I'll be like, no, 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 it's okay. Like, no, make them do push-ups. And, uh, and so we usually make everyone do them. It's fun. But so I started them on either side of the goalpost, put them in a push-up position, yell go, and they have to run around the cone, first to the ball, and man, they love it. And man, we just keep score, first to five. Um, sometimes when I'm upset, I just punt a ball and say, go get the ball, and they love it. I don't even understand. It's not abusive, I swear, they love it, man. I swear. Well, we got done with the drill, and uh, one of the girls, her name is Ellis. She goes, coach, I wanna race you. I'm like, all right, second grade girl. I mean, you want some? I mean, if you want some, I'm here. I am bigger, I am faster, I am more experienced, and I, I'm definitely older. And so we get in the push-up position, and so I'm like, hey, Ellis, if you wanna say go, you say go. And all of a sudden, she says go, and man, we pop up. I'm like, I mean, I'm like Usain Bolt. I'm out of the blocks, I am moving. I am bigger, stronger, faster, more experienced. I'm about to turn the corner, but what I don't have are cleats. And so I slip and I fall on my old man hip, and Ellis beats me and she just mocks me and laughs me and then makes me do push-ups because I lost. <laughs> the fastest doesn't always win. I swear, I am faster than her. The fastest doesn't always win. So, sometimes the sprinter trips. Sometimes the fighter gets sucker punched. Sometimes the best worker gets overlooked and doesn't get the promotion. Solomon is saying that survival of the fittest hasn't gotten its memo to lightning just yet because sometimes the prowling lion is about to take the gazelle and lightning falls upon it and kills it. Sometimes life pushes through in unpredictable ways. And it goes on, look at verse 12. It says, all the way to the end. So verse 12, it says, for man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Solomon says, and he just notes, being the healthiest, the wisest, or the most cautious doesn't mean you don't die suddenly. It's not a guarantee. And like, it's one thing to talk about it. It's one thing to make fun of the weather. It's one thing to look and see the prowling lion about to jump on the gazelle and the tree falls and kills it. It's one thing there. But when it's your life, and when all of your endeavors have pushed to this one goal, to safeguard, to bring about a result, to make your marriage what you think it should be, to safeguard your finances, to make yourself as healthy as possible, and it's all for nothing, there is a grunge in our heart. And yet there's a whisper 
that's there to remind us sin underskirts all and the wages of sin is death and our hard work and our good choices if they could have stopped it then Jesus wouldn't have come he would have just sent some do-betters but do-betters didn't help because the swiftest doesn't always win the strongest doesn't always win the smartest doesn't always win so the first is reality is just unpredictable and it's unpredictable because of, of folly and, and sin. And that's the connection that folly and sin run deeper than just our doings. And so let's just look at the nature of what we see in folly and sin. And so the first thing that I want to point out is sin and foolishness or folly will take all. It wants all. It doesn't want just a part of your life. It doesn't just want to exist when, when, in nighttime when it's dark. It doesn't want just to exist when you're alone. It doesn't want to just exist at times times of your life it wants all and so look at this it starts off and we talk about foolishness overtaking wisdom but then in verse 18 it kind of makes this switch where it says one sinner or one sin can disrupt everything and so the warning is about small sins push and push and push until they take all until it overtakes you Small sins grow to overtake all. Look at verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seems great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king who came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Like, like, first notice the, the contrast. I mean, it, a lot of words to show this. We got a great king with great siege works, and it's coming against a little city with a few men in it. And it was rescued by a poor, wise man. Big, loud, overpowering, easily noticed, came against small, easy to miss, and lost. Like, wisdom prevailed. Like, like the moment, like hearing this, we're supposed to say, man, we need to make a monument. We need to have a parade, like a real parade, like a real, real parade. We need to like blow this thing out. We need to make a movie about this. And then after like 20 years, make another movie about it because the first movie was so great about it, just like Red Dawn. So there was a Red Dawn movie in the early 80s, had Patrick Swayze um, in it. And then they remade it in the 2000s. And both are good because, it's the high school football team and the cheerleading squad that defeat the enemies. And I mean, that makes you like, I mean, that makes you, I, I just want to be a part of that. Like, it's like, we need to celebrate this. This is incredible. But look at what it says in verse 15. Yet no one remembered that poor man. The quiet, consistent victory of wisdom was lost. But Solomon says that it's even more insulting than that. Look at verse 16. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. It wasn't just that the story was lost. It wasn't just that it was forgotten. It was that the important message wasn't told. And now Solomon is going to give us a couple proverbs about this. He's going to make a couple statements about this. Like it says that it was despised. 
Like, we looked at it, and we looked at I mean, remember, yeah, yeah, that was great. Giving no effort to it, not making it central to our life, not talking about the praiseworthiness of this. It was despised. Now, look, the, the two Proverbs, verse 17. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. The, the first proverb, it says, you have to listen carefully to hear and notice the truth of life. It says it, it gets drowned out. There's so many distractions. There's so many other voices. There's so many things competing for you and your allegiance. And yet beneath it all is a steady roar whispering the truth of life. But you have to push things out. You have to get things away. You have to listen in deeper and so it says, be careful. Wisdom and truth is, is a consistent rolling whisper that can be missed in the distractions of life. And then it says it kind of another way. We get another proverb in verse 9, verse 18, and we're going to carry through the chapter to 10.1. And so listen, it says, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. And then it describes it. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off stench so that folly outweighs wisdom and honor. And, and so the, the proverb here, the truth here is a little sin or a little folly can turn you off to a lot of good. And so one sinner or possibly one sin can destroy the aroma of truth and goodness in your life. And it's going to actually describe this in several verses to follow in several different ways. But the picture they give is ointment, like perfume with dead flies in it. And so I, I, I don't know how, how that works, um, but I do know that right as soon as it gets hot, like all the gnats in the neighborhood like come around our trash can or our kitchen and just like mate and like grow and grow and grow. And it gets to where like if you're gonna throw something away, you gotta keep your mouth shut or you're gonna eat a gnat. And so like, you know, life hacks, you can take a little glass, put saran wrap over it, put some vinegar in it, a little dish soap, put some holes in it and they congregate by the pool and they slip in and they die. Do you know what works better than that? Wine. You take a glass, you put a little wine in it, a little dish soap, a couple holes, and you've got like a big boozy death all over the place right there. Like all of a sudden, and it doesn't matter, like it could be good vintage wine. It could be something that's aged to perfection. It could be something that you would pour out of a decanter. That's a fancy thing you pour wine out. I looked it up. I saw a picture of it. It could be all of those things, but you get some gnats in that and everybody's going to pass on it. A little sin ruins the whole thing. What Jesus would have said is a little leaven gets in and it works itself through the whole loaf of bread. And what it's meant to say is sin comes in and it wants to take all. It wants to ruin everything. A small thing like a gnat ruins something otherwise so good. Solomon says that the truth of sin and foolishness a little can turn you away from something so good. And it goes on, look at verse two. It says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. And man, when I was reading and studying this, I just could not believe that the Republican Party has not got a hold of this yet. 
Like, I just could, I seriously could not believe. Like, I mean, I grew up in Oklahoma, you know, Texas A&M, they took that uh, Psalm 7510 to, like, you know, stick it to Texas with, like, oh, man, we'll cut off the horns of the wicked. And, man, they put it on shirts and coffee cups. Like, apparently, the, the Republican Party is not reading Ecclesiastes because I cannot believe they have not put this on something yet. Let's keep going, verse 3. Even when the fool walks on, by the way, I just want to say, I, I don't think that, I mean, it's not speaking to our political uh, alignment here. I just, I just can't believe they haven't hopped on that yet. Uh, verse three, even when the fool walk, uh, walks on the road, he lacks sense. He says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of a ruler rises against you, do not leave your place for calmness will lay great offense to the rest. Like, like, look at what this is saying. Sin and foolishness can start small, but like addiction, it will grow and grow until it changes the entire direction of your life. It's trying to paint a picture like, look at the, like, if we look at kind of the progression here, it says, it caused many to, to forget the trusted wisdom from the past. The, little, the poor guy in the little city held it and saved lots of lives and kept off the big bad king with great siege works. Like, in verse 15, it, it's telling us, like, we're prone to forget about it. Sin and foolishness wants us to forget about the mighty works of the past of what God's done. That's why regular Bible reading is so important that we remind ourselves that, man, God has done things in the past and he's been faithful in the past, so he'll be faithful in the present. But it also, it drowned out the trusted whisper of truth with distractions and shouts. We see that in verse 17. Or, or describe like this way, like a little dead gnat ruining perfume, a little sin taints life all the way through or by it, the entire direction of life is pulled off course. We saw that in verse two. Or little by little, it consumes until it is the noticeable thing about you, verse three. The, the picture is, you can tell someone just walking down the street that they are not okay. There, there was a movie in the 90s it's called The Program, about a football NCAA program, and it was just crazy, everything that happened. And they had a scene in it where all, like the offensive, uh, the offense, the offense they, uh, they were making bad choices, they got drunk, and then they laid down in the road on the center line as cars raced pie. Everyone who would have seen that would have been like, they are idiots. They are making bad choices. They had to take the scene out because high school football teams started to do the same thing. It's saying like sin doesn't just want a part of your life, man. It wants to step in to take over, to change the direction, to put you in harm's way. Like, do you see the need for wisdom and goodness? Like the question in this moment, but do you see the addictive pull of sin that wants to consume you? It starts like a gnat, a small fly, until it consumes the whole of your character. And it's a reminder that sin is not a mistake that we make. It's much more like a hungry predator crouching, trying to look smaller than what it is, ready to pounce upon you and to devour you. And that is the exact picture we get of sin in Genesis 4. 
Genesis 4, we have Cain and Abel. And so this is what happens is God comes to Cain to warn him of something really dangerous in his life. And it reads like this, Genesis 4, verse 6. Just listen. It says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And then this is the warning. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Like like God comes and he says, be careful. Your anger is not an isolated thing. Like it's not just gonna stop there as you curse someone in your heart and you imagine the bad things that should happen to them. It will consume all things. It might start small, but it will take over. It will change the direction of your life. You think it's an irritable gnat, but it's not. It's a crouching lion waiting for the right time to devour you. God came to God came to warn Cain about a sin that seems small. But verse eight, it says, and Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The picture of sin is it might look small, but it's trying to look small. It's crouching down, waiting for the moment to spring. Like the picture that we get, is not, sin is not just things that you do. It's something much deeper, something that wants to what this says, it wants to, it's contrary to you. It wants to oppose you. It wants to change the course of your life. And so what we see is the race is not always won by the swiftest, like the tortoise and the hare, the slow push of sin wants to eventually win out. But we also see that sin wants to infiltrate all things. It wants to spread out in your life. And then we see sin and foolishness infects all and wants to turn life upside down. Like look, look at verse 8 and 11. First, I think it's kind of funny. It wants you to know that your work will probably kill you. Um, and like if that's all you take from this, like man, I shouldn't get a job. It'll kill me. I'm doing the safest thing. You you haven't been paying attention to Ecclesiastes, but look at verse eight. It says, he who digs a pit will fall into it and a serpent will bite him who breaks through the wall. And so this is just saying, like, if your job is digging pits for a living, like, you have a much greater chance of actually dying in a pit than other people who never do anything with pits. Or it goes on, and it says, if your job is doing demo day for the DIY show, like, you have a much bigger job or a much bigger chance of actually dying on the show than anyone else. Even though you might have broken down the walls a hundred times, by chance you break it down and a snake comes out and bites you. And so it just says, listen, you could be really good at what what you do and you can be really really careful in how you do it but then one day it all just derails and then it goes on look at verse 9 it says he who quarries stones is hurt by them and he who splits logs is endangered by them I love that it doesn't even explain how the logs or stones can hurt you because it's obvious. They're heavy and they're hard. And then verse 10, it says, if the iron is blunt, one does not sharpen the edge. He must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. I mean, it's just saying, don't be dumb. Sharpen the ax first. And then I love this one. And we're actually, in, in this summer, we're doing some psalms. We actually hear this again in the Psalms, but it says this, if the serpent bites before it's charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. 
Like first things first, forgetting to play the flute before you play with the snake is very, very, very bad. Whatever you do, no matter what expertise or expert level you do it, there is always the chance that it will overtake you. In, in third grade, my Sunday school teacher, he um, had a lawn mowing business when he was younger, and uh, he uh, cut three of his fingers off um, on the blade, and so his hand was kind of twisted over, and he just had uh, two and a half fingers, and man, we asked him to tell us that story like 30 times, and so he would be like, all right, I'll tell it to you. You guys pay attention. We're like, okay, and we'd be quiet, and then we get to the end. He's like, all right, and he'd tell us the same story over and over. He's like, well, you know, I was mowing, got done, and I, you know, reached under there and cut my hand off, and he'd raise his hand up, you know, when he did it, and we would all just yell and be so excited. I mean, I, it might have been awful for him. I don't know, but if you work with lawnmowers, your chance of getting hurt by a lawnmower is much higher. Hey, let, let me tell you some other things. If you work with people, you're going to get hurt by people. If you, if you work with relationships, they're probably going to hurt you. Like, like he's just saying, like, you, if you work and spend a lot of time, even if you're careful, there is still a chance that that's going to hurt. If you work for a paper company, like, you're going to get paper cuts. If you work for a coffee shop, you're probably going to get burned at some point. If you make um, acai bowls, I mean, it's a superfood. Nothing will happen to you. I mean, nothing. And so, like, whatever you do and whatever you're around, it puts you at risk. Verse five, he moves from your work's gonna kill you to this. He says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun as if it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places and the rich sit in low places. I have seen slaves on horses and the princes walking on the ground like slaves. Like this is specifically pointed at, at leadership and what we hold up as society. And he says there is an upside down nature that sin brings to life and to society where we praise things that are foolish. And when we start praising things that are foolish, and like right now, man, you should be thinking about every TikTok thing you've laughed at and every site that you go to. Like when we praise things that are foolish, it starts to erode things and turn them upside down. Like, it can be applied further than just leadership. Like, sin wants to turn all of life upside down. And once again, it is addictive and seeks to take all. It won't just stop. It won't just go away. It won't just settle for you. Like, we want to treat sin like it's a cute puppy on a leash that's there to play with when we want to play. But Genesis 4 said it's not a cute puppy. It's a crouching lion wanting to devour you. And the leash that you think is holding it back has no power to keep it from turning on you. And it has no strength to hold it back from the people you love. It's pervasive. Like leaven and bread, it covers all. It's beneath the decision-making mechanisms that we have. See, the battle doesn't always go to the strongest. Sin infects all. Sin wants all. And it lives everywhere. And he gives us his example, like it lives in our words. Like wise words can do much good, but foolish words can hurt a lot. And so look at verse 12. It says, the words of the wise man's mouth win him favor. Wise words can do much good. 
Like, we, we need to hear that. Like, listen, um, Proverbs 18, man, it, it's just, it's, it's got a bunch of things uh, that really convict communication and how you talk to one another. It talks about, hey, if you isolate yourself, you really just want your own end. It's a power control against others. And so if when conflict happens, if you just bite your lip and cross your arms and walk away, you don't want to be vulnerable. You don't want intimacy. You want control. But then it speaks to the other side. Like if you don't listen before you speak and you just shout your opinion, you don't want intimacy. You don't want relationship. You just want to win. And then it gets to the very end, the last two verses of the chapter, and it says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And then it switches and it talks about marriage and it says you know a wife is a gift from the lord and man i i always just look at that and they seem like you know just two different ideas and they probably are just two different ideas but man if you if your relationship is hurting what does your talk sound like every day is it bringing life or is it bringing death See, God is not, your marriage is not made and relationships aren't made in big events. They're made in the mundane moments of every day when you choose forgiveness and sweetness and kindness and long steading, not just to correct and jump in. Like you choose to be still and quiet. That is sowing something that will grow something. But if you choose suspicion and you devour one another and you pick and you always bring up the past and all the ways that someone fails, you're also sowing something and that crop will grow. And so it talks about these words. And so the first it says, the words of a wise man win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Think about what your words are growing. Words can grow life and they can consume like cancer. Verse 13, the beginning of words of his mouth is foolishness and the end of his talk is evil madness. Like think about where your words are taking you. Like words can warp your very view of life. They can destroy you in crazy, evil ways. Like the stories that we tell ourselves that we rehearse over and over, like we can start to believe them and that is the essence of crazy because it's not reality. It talks about the danger of words. Verse 14, it says, A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. Like, think what your words might be hiding. You know, in, um, in kind of group kind of counseling stuff um, I've participated in, uh, my danger is always using the most words. Probably doesn't shock you much. Using the most words and being known the least. When descriptions get long and use lots of words, truth is usually pretty rare. So it warns us. Verse 15, it says, The toil of a fool wears on him, for he does not know the way to the city. And this is kind of pulling 13 and 14 together. Like, our excuses... And our narratives that we rehearse start to really confuse us where we don't even know the way back. Verse 16 through 18, it says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. And happy are you, O land, when the king is a son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Like this just says, like the responsibilities that you hold, if you don't rise up to the occasion, they start to go bad. Like if you act like a child, that means you don't want to be accountable for anything. Like people suffer greatly. 
If you push responsibilities away for self-indulgence, you suffer and others suffer. And like to be real clear, like it's gonna go on and it's gonna say like, man, kind of get back to the idea of just like good dinner and it's gonna say, man, there is a time to like feast. There is a time to come together with people. It's not the morning. It's not the morning. And it's never drunkenness. Verse 18 is connecting the idea just to summarize it. It would be a proverb that would be used. Though through sloth the roof sinks and through indolence the house leaks, all of life takes upkeep because it is broken and it falls apart. The car will break, the roof will leak, and relationships will require forgiveness, recommitment, and repentance. Verse 19. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers all things. Most of my commentaries thought that this might have been like a common like drinking song um, where, you know, bread is made for laughter. And it's true, man. Gluten-free is just sad. I mean, it's just sad. And it says wine gladdens the life. I mean, comedians know that if the crowd drinks more, their stories are funnier. Like, it's just true. And then it knows this, like money fixes a lot of things. My truck broke. I don't know what broke on it. I know what fixed it, $3,800. That's what fixed it. What broke on your truck? $3,800. That's what it needed. And so it's kind of this true thing, but the picture is, is the people who are supposed to be ruling have responsibilities for getting it and just saying, oh man, this is crazy. Bread is, makes me laugh. I mean, you know, I mean, and so the idea is stepping away from responsibilities to escape. And we need to hear this over and over and over. Stop trying to escape your life. Stop coming up with hard conversations you don't want to have and then just losing yourself on your favorite show. Stop escaping life. Engage it. It is scary. You're probably going to find out that you're wrong. Like you've been rehearsing all the evidence for why you're right. You're probably going to find out that your evidence is not quite the slam dunk you thought it was. But it will build and it will grow because what this is saying over and over is sin creeps in and it wants to spread out and it doesn't it doesn't listen to your boundaries it wants to creep over them and it's not going to be held by your leash because it's a devouring lion and then it says this and i just find this funny in verse 20 it says even in your thoughts do not curse the king nor in your bedroom curse the rich so we're still talking about words for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter and this is, I just, my, my grandma Kay, she used to always just say, a little birdie told me. I thought she was just weird, but she was really biblical. <laughs> but I mean, have you not like been, you know, with people and like all of a sudden a subject or something comes off and like everyone's just like ripping it and saying things and you say one thing, but what you say gets around to the person and you're just busted. Like no one else. I mean, that hadn't happened to anyone else. Words. See, life is not always predictable. Sin wants to take all. Sin infects all. From our thoughts to our words to our motivations to our doings to the way that we want to understand things, it's absolutely pervasive. The words of the wise 
heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of rulers among fools. Back in verse 13 of chapter 9, we got the story of the small city that was saved by the the poor wise man, even though great armies surrounded it with a great king and great siege works. And then it goes on to say, but everyone forgot, no one listened, no one heeded the words. And then there's just this truism, but wisdom is proved right. That's basically what it says, but wisdom is still right. See, the message of the Bible is the gospel And it's about a poor man who entered this world. The rich king of the universe entered into our world to a nowhere town, to a nowhere family, and came in with an otherworldly wisdom that said things like this. Love your enemy. Said things like this. The the way that you have more is to, to give away. Said things like this, that, that God loves the poor and values the poor, and though society may not, God has a place. Said things like this, like you can escape sin, Satan, and death if you look and you believe and you receive and you orientate your life around this man who was a carpenter turned teacher. His name was Jesus Christ, who went to the cross for our sins and rose again, that if you just literally believe and receive, that there is something about that that starts to change change you from the inside out and the mystery of the pervasiveness of sin that affects our words and thoughts to our very being that holds no bounds, he starts to battle and change you. But we forgot. We despise his words. But John 1.12, it says this, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God. Have you heard about Jesus? Can you hear the message of the gospel resounding in your life when we talk about the pervasiveness of sin and all your excuses and all that it lives? Do you see the grip of it? That it's not a puppy on a string, but it's a devouring lion and you're starting to get afraid because it's turning on you and it's starting to get away from you. Like, do you feel, does this explain reality to you more or will you despise it? See, Jesus' words It gives us an opportunity to receive his offer, to believe who he says he is, and to come like a child, become children of God, and to come like a child to a table for what he provides and what he's provided his son, the death and resurrection of Jesus. His body was torn apart. His blood was spilt. And that's why we remember that every week. Like children, we come to the table bringing nothing, but there's a place for us. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, I just pray that even the movements that we have, oh gosh, whatever the small sin or small foolishness living in our life that we think might be confined, Lord, we would bring that and we would offer it to you. Lord, or or we would take it and we would bring it with words and we would ask for prayer behind the screens. Lord, that we would just, when we move, there would be a movement. We wouldn't despise your words. There would be a real picture of receiving and believing and our belief would be made new again. The way we take communion is just as we sing, there's gonna be movement all around. We move forward and we start on the bread side. A piece of bread will be broken for you and handed to you. And then you dip it into either the wine, which is in the stoneware, or grape juice, which is in the glassware. 
And this is a movement that just like a child, we're coming to the table. We don't bring anything but what we have. It's a reminder that the way we get into the kingdom is we become children of God again, that our sin has to be dealt with. And the elements tell us how they're dealt with. The broken body of Jesus, the spilt blood of Jesus. And when we do it, man, we find hope. Lord, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.